Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. It's good to be back with you. We're here with episode 38. I'm Liam McNicholas and I'm a teacher uh, who works in operations in the ACT and I'm joined, as I always am, each week uh, by my two wonderful colleagues and co-hosts. So firstly, uh, Leanne Gibbs, who's a leadership and policy expert. Hi Leanne, how are you going? I'm good, Liam. How are you? I'm very well, very well. And Lisa, an advocate and consultant. Uh, how are you going, Lisa? I'm good too. Now, I'm hoping, I'm assuming you've both checked any dual citizenship status you have this week and that you're both <laughs> eligible to appear on the podcast this week. I've called, I've called my mum. what she signed me up for because she's dead, so I could really be anything. Oh, no. I, you know, I found myself in that thinking... Yeah, that could happen. <laughs> like your mum could sign you up for something <laughs> you know, that, you, that you had no interest in whatsoever or really wasn't okay for you and let you know afterwards. My children yeah, have that's more likely to, to be a mailing list or, you know, a, <laughs> yeah, citizenship. a group. I don't know, <laughs> soccer, soccer, some sort of sport. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we will all obviously all make sure we check that uh, over the course of the week, and we'll report back next week. But um, look, as as far as we know, we're um we're we're not resigning from our positions on the early education show just yet. Uh, but let's uh, bring you the news list for the week, and we've got uh, a few items to bring you. And we're going to go first to Leanne about what sounds like a very interesting transition to school program for Aboriginal children. Do you want to take us through that one, Leanne? Uh, this one is Pathfinders Run Aboriginal Transition to School Program. And it's the reason why I've put this one forward is because it's a it's an interesting program and it looks like it's doing incredibly worthwhile work um, in terms of making that link between sometimes home and preschool, sometimes home and school, sometimes the community. So it is a it's an interesting program, but what struck me was that there are lots of small um, programs that are funded to do the sort of work that I think could be best done within an organisation like an early childhood service. And this may well come out of the service and it may well be, it, it might be represented differently, but I, I always wonder about these um, opportunities that are funded that we fund lots and lots of little things when I wonder what would happen if we actually put all of those little programs, all that funding into an early childhood setting and they did exactly the same sort of work. And it just, it just feels like there's something that could be best positioned there. Yep. Absolutely. And I think um, it's a good acknowledgement, I think, that that transition to school period is is is, is tough for, for, for a lot of children, but for children who are already sort of experiencing vulnerability, it can be one of those things that's particularly difficult. So probably a good area to focus yeah. on. And it talks about um, that, that person being um, someone who can support their educational journey to ensure that their education experience is a positive one. And... Obviously, there's more work being done, but I, I think in terms of cultural competency, early childhood settings need to be working in this area. They need to be thinking about how their services are engaging with um, children, all children, which so many are doing so well. But I wonder whether the money could be, you know, based in an early childhood service. 
Yeah, we could say that about a whole range of programs, probably. Um, mm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Leanne. Uh, Lisa, we're going to go over to you now about um, an article with a question which I hope, or that I know the answer to, but it's, um, is Universal <laughs> Pre-K worth the cost? Yeah, and look, we see a lot of these articles coming out of the US about different research on different forms of, um, of early education. It all seems to add up to, yes, it always works out to be worth much more than you invest in it. The outcome is worth more than what you invest in it. But I pulled this one out particularly because it, unlike specific programs, like um, Heckman often looks at... Um, specific programs that are targeted towards uh, disadvantaged communities and looks at, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of that. This one was looking at universal pre-K and said, you know, does giving pre-K or early education to everyone um, exceed the cost of administering the program or of funding the program? And yes, it did. It found that for every $1 spent in um, Tulsa, Tulsa, I think, is in Oklahoma, for every $1 that they spent on universal pre-K, there's a societal gain of $1.89. So once again, whatever we spend, it's worth it. Hi, and don't don't you just? I wish I had a dollar actually for every time this sort of article was published. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll probably fund some good uh, pre-K programs. But um, yes, I got to say the I, I, I don't know if it's just because we have to sort of track these down each week for the news list, but it, it, it's appeared to you too that the US has particularly upped its game in in at, at least publicising a lot of this research and reports. And I don't know if it's anything to do with their advocate and research fears that focusing on it on focuses on early education might diminished with it with the current sort of conservative leanings in the US but I feel like there's been a lot of just uh, a bit of a flood of reporting and research in this area over the last probably 12 months I think it, it, it increases as poverty increases and as uh, crime rates increase etc cetera, etc cetera. people get more scared and so they look at is there a magic pill and advocacy organisations in the US have been able to say, well, yeah, actually there is, it's early education. So if you look at the percentage of of their population that think that early education is something that the federal government should do, it's, you know, like 90% or something, unlike health, which they all seem to think they can do without. And it it strikes me that the advocacy organisations just run a very clear line about this. They're they're very sort of forthright and maybe they have some some impact on the sorts of things that gets publicised. But do you ever look at the news lists and think, it like you feel like Dory or something? Oh, I forgot. Early education is really <laughs> a great thing. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> like every time you get the list, it's exactly the same thing. And it's like it's some brand new kind of mind-blowing set of statistics that it actually is fantastic and it works I go oh that's right this week it's, it must be a different do you ever feel like that a little... i'm sorry and my memory lasts longer than one week so... <laughs> <laughs> i just think surely like it's so shameful isn't it that we have to keep pushing this stuff it keeps coming up and you know particularly here we just don't fund it 
No. Yeah, what? but you know, as I don't know who said it, but if you know, if data and facts were to change things, then we'd have really well-funded early education programs in Australia. That's not why we yes. don't have it. Because yes. Because the lack of data or facts. But no, that's that's very true. But it's it's almost like it, it's exactly the same story every single time. Well, yep. well, as it keeps coming up each week, we'll keep covering it and being slightly surprised yes. each week. Yes, I'm happy oh, with that. That's a terrific article, Lisa. I've never seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All Check right. it out. Well, it's your turn to bring us a, an awesome article now, Leanne. This is um, this is a letter to the editor, oh. I think, about access to affordable oh, education. It's the state government. It's the New South Wales state government oh, this saying that well. they're funding early childhood <laughs> education well. Oh. Well done. Have they said that before, Lisa? Oh. <laughs> I've just once or twice. <laughs> well, this is one of these classic letters to the editor and look, all due respect to, to uh, the Minister, Sarah Mitchell, because we have had her speak on the show and she gave us a wonderful overview of early childhood education and her vision for it. And this is a nice little bit of space that's been allocated in the, uh, what is it, the Port News um, about the area. And I noticed that she's used the same technique from Warhope to Win or Windsor. I think she uses these, you know, uh, what are they, alliterations or whatever, to uh, to demonstrate that children um, are receiving uh, well-funded early childhood education. And I think that someone actually addressed this on Facebook, saying that they're effectively this is not the truth for their for their particular area, which we know there are always pockets that do not benefit from this funding and there are some areas that really benefit from it. But what surprised me, and I sent Lisa a quick email to say, goodness me, have you ever seen um, preschool for $15 a day in New South Wales? And that was before the funding. I don't think I ever saw preschool for $15 a day. Um, What did I say, Lam? I said, tell her she's dreaming. Mm, before the and now it's five dollars a day and this is in a, a particular community preschool well hats off I think that's absolutely fantastic but the only time I'm going to get on board with this sort of letter to the editor is when it's five dollars a day for every single child in New South Wales ACT blah 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 to attend a preschool or an early childhood setting for sure from Adelaide to Alice Springs that's right. When every child from Madeleine to Alice Springs gets their early childhood education for five dollars a day. Wonderful, or less. Mm. Um, mm. Now we've got one more to bring you. This one's from Lisa about um, oh, yeah, the headline: a rental a, agreement. This sounds exciting. Okay. This is um, just a very quick one, but uh, throughout. Lots of New South Wales, and I suspect throughout um, other parts, well, I know it's in other parts of Australia as well, councils sometimes are pulling away from commitments to early education and care, especially those councils that have um, uh, premises that they lease to, to services and when, you know, the facility guys get in and look at it and go, oh, that's, you know, we've got a block of land there and it's being leased to a childcare centre and we should be able to make lots and lots of money out of this, so let's up their rent. And that's what happened to this particular one. The council was Port Stephens Council and the preschool was Medowie Preschool. 
and they were going to be charged, I think, from a more or less peppercorn rent at the moment, they were going to be charged 5000 a year um, for the next 10 years and then it was to go on market, market rents from there on in. But just before all of that happened, um, a motion was um, uh, passed at um, council and uh, I've heard it had nothing to do with um, uh, elections coming up or anything like that. But um, the preschool is now moving on to a 30-year lease with a rent that will be much less than the 5600 that was initially planned. And Yay. so they're set That's for unreal. the next 30 years. So Isn't that great? Well what done, Deputy can, what, um, uh, what, what can happen at local government? Yeah, isn't that well, – let's – snaps for, for – what is it, Port Stephens Council, is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, snaps for them. Snaps Advocacy for can work. Snaps Chris Dewan. Isn't that great? Yes. Well Wonderful. Done, um, fantastic. Well, that's uh, the, the key stories we're bringing you for this week. We'll obviously bring you a bunch more in our next episode next week. But uh, stick, with, stick, with, or stick with us for a short musical break and then we'll be back with our main topic for the night. All right, we're back, and this week we're going to have a discussion about, uh, I guess, a topic we've 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 touched on in a few different ways over the course of the podcast, but um, we're sort of going to tackle it head on uh, this week, um, and we're going to look at, uh, essentially, you know, community-based management of early childhood education and care services, and how they operate under the national quality framework. So, I guess we can all declare our biases that we're all pretty pro-community-based management, and particularly not-for-profit uh, approaches to early childhood education, but we probably haven't laid all our cards on the table in terms of what we think of that and what the challenges and, and positives are. Uh, so this is the space to do it. So now Lisa and Leanne are both far more expert on this topic than I am. So I'm going to be basically in the role of flinging questions and chucking my two cents in where I can. But uh, I wanted to start a bit by... Come on, <laughs> confess, Liam, and just say that when we had our usual um, hard preparation before this, like we spoke for two minutes before the podcast <laughs> started, we discovered we had different views on this. So I think it's actually going to be really important that you speak up, Liam, because no. we have different views. Well, yes, well, I'm sure they'll come out during the course of the uh, podcast. We don't go too far behind the scenes about that. I think between the three of us, we all had different ideas about what this topic actually meant when we came into it. But yeah, we'll... I was going to say different views on the topic or different views of the topic. <laughs> different views upon the, the, the benefits or otherwise of community-based management. For or or what indeed community management was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I will. We'll have to we'll continue this online. We're going to have to take this offline because I maintain that um, I've been led astray by Lisa. But anyway, but just to remind everyone, you can you can support the show financially on Patreon now and pay for this incoherent um, and unorganised <laughs> weekly podcast. So, but let's we, we as we've sort of done in similar topics, I think it's worth doing a bit of scene setting first. So. Um, and I might go maybe first to you, Leanne, about uh, so how did in terms of you know community based management how how I, think, I always think it's really important to delineate pre national quality framework which launched in 2012 and post so what it's a you know in really broad terms what did community management sort of look like before the the fantastic new world of the national quality framework? Well, I think I'm going to be. 
I, I think maybe I've got different views of this because I actually don't think it looked that different. I mean, the, the, it's, it, is, it is actually different in terms of the regulation, in terms of the law, in terms of the way community management is embedded within that. But community management has existed for, for a very, very, very long time. As a matter of fact, it was pretty much the... Um, you know, the way that, that early childhood education and, and childcare began. Truly the original and model. It, it, exactly. And um, my experience over my many, many years in early childhood has been, you know, my first job was with a community managed service in Glen Innes, Hello Peter Pan Preschool, which is no longer Peter Pan Preschool. But um, the, the responsibilities probably sit within the laws around uh, things like charities and around <clears throat> um, aspects of of um, board, the way boards run. And so in terms of this, and, and Lisa's probably going to, to pull out a few things here and, and tell me all of the nuanced differences, and I'll be grateful to her for that. Um, <laughs> no, but, but essentially, community management has not changed, but it has become probably more complex, more considerations, more direct um, implications in terms of its functioning um, and if it violates its, its um, you know, the, the rules and laws under the its approved provider status. Yeah, I think it's something that in some states has probably changed more radically than in others, but in those states that had regulations for education and care services and fairly strong regulations beforehand, there's probably been less of a change than what you would think. But there has been a lot more awareness mm. um, of the implications of the regulations and of, of the regulations of, for, uh, of the issues that individuals and um, providers can face if they're in breach of the regulations and the law. But I so think, but do I don't think that's changed, you know, what, what services committees have to do. I think it's just changed their awareness of that. Yeah, and there's, and there's been changes over the years in terms of not um, the, the way that the uh, that a preschool or a childcare centre or or an early childhood setting operates within that, that form of regulations. There's also been changes around the way, for example, a small business or a not-for-profit or a charity functions. And so some of those changes have come through. I wonder whether it is about this greater awareness because we do have a new regulatory regime and we do have new standards. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, yeah. yeah, I think I'd agree with you. I think it probably looks different uh, in each state and territory. And talking from the ACT perspective, I think, I think it actually was a bit of a, there was a bit of a hard change. But I think it wasn't one that it's. I think it's one that's only really being sort of acknowledged and felt now. And I think the, the specific issue in the ACT is because of the size. So the community organisations in the ACT generally do a whole bunch of stuff. So there are no dedicated. There isn't a dedicated organisation, community-based, not-for-profit that just does early childhood. Although there are in New South Wales, Queens, you know, or, you know, because of the size of the state. So it was a significant shift, I think, for organisations where this was sort of one part of what they were doing, and maybe didn't have as strong a focus, particularly from a regulatory and a, and a law perspective. And then that suddenly, you know, 
you know, overnight in the terms of, you know, you know, January 2012 rolling around, although obviously there was a lead up, but all of a sudden became quite a different ball game than they were uh, potentially used to or operated in the past. I think in the ACT, I think we're still feeling some of those changes and community organisations have probably had to have a bigger focus on it than they were probably more used to, to put them. They were probably Did used to have regulations beforehand. Well, yeah, but, uh, I mean, they were pretty light touch. I mean, obviously everyone operated under the NCAC. The ACT government directly regulated them as they do now, but the the regulations were <laughs> they mostly incomprehensible in certain, in certain areas, but were also not as nowhere near as detailed as the National Quality Framework, particularly the, the, regu- the, the intersection between the regulations and the law. But it's funny, isn't it? Because for New South Wales, these the the current national regulations are a lot lighter touch. <laughs> mm. Yeah, um, we went from having quite prescriptive regulations so that you knew how how deep your softball had to be mm. um, to these ones where if you can prove that children are safe, it doesn't even matter if you don't have softball. So it, but yeah, some of the and some of the things I think that we kind of forget in this, well, I don't know whether we forget them, but this this um, community management, whether it's a committee or whether it's a board or whatever, they are the employers. So, you know, there are, there are laws that relate to their role as an employer, which are actually quite separate from the National Quality Framework. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's this kind of whole you know, raft of of things that relate to that. And that's, I guess, why I'm saying, well, they did, you know, things have changed, but there's a lot of things that haven't changed or were already complex or um, challenging or were bigger responsibilities than often community committees felt they had. Yeah. Liam, can I just check one thing that you just said about the ACT? Are you telling me that there is no standalone not-for-profit services? Yes, there are, there are. Yeah, there are standalones, <laughs> but absolutely. But, <laughs> but in terms of organisations providing multiple centres and working in an organisational capacity, no, there are none of those. There are, but there there are less than you think in the ACT. A lot of them are for profit. Um, there are very few now, sort of committee run or, or sort of individually run not for profit organisations in the ACT doing individual centres. That's There's interesting a few though, because isn't it? if you, I, I pulled out the stats on that today. Of course, I did, and <laughs> we're still sitting that eighty-three percent of providers only run one childcare, one education and care service. Is that nationally? Yes, I, I yeah, nationally. it is. Yeah. I was um, I pulled out those stats too, Lisa, because I thought I'm going to go the preemptive strike on this. <laughs> Lisa and I'm got in go first. Head to head <laughs> with Lisa on stats. <laughs> but I was also um, very, very interested in what the percentage was now of of community managed first. It sort of was. Int- I'm glad we did this topic tonight because I was interested in where that was at, and I I was surprised to see that same stat around the single, single, um, either owned or managed service. Yeah, and the other stat that's interesting is that 35% of our services nationally are community-based. And what that I'm thinking of when the first, uh, when accreditation was first introduced under the NCAC, that stat was pretty much reversed. 
So, really? yeah, wow. except that when the NCAC only covered long day care, so you can't it's you can't compare like to like because that thirty five percent is bush services, family day care services, preschools, and long yeah, day true. Care. And would it also be that I think that overnight the ABC Learning Centres went from for-profit to not-for-profit mm. under good start? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. As a peak, as a peak that worked for the um, that that was uh, speaking on behalf of the not-for-profit sector, I thought our our um, wins that year were particularly good. <laughs> that was a very good win. <laughs> so the next big question, I guess, if we've um, uh, is I guess why bother with community management? Do we think it's too difficult or challenging, either pre or post NQF? And sorry, Lisa, I know I went to Leanne first, but I think Leanne did actually have some specific views on this. But we'll obviously get both of your views. But Leanne, you know, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you've got a pretty obvious answer to this. But should we bother with community management? Well, yes, I do think we should. And I, but I don't know that we should. Really, Leanne? (laughs) (laughs) Would be worrying if it was a no. I do do have a fundamental agreement, uh, sorry, a a fundamental um, perspective on this that is not necessarily related to the for profit, not for profit aspect. And the reason why is that I believe that community management is in early childhood settings is sometimes the glue that holds a community together before they commence school. And, you know, quite apart from the sort of skills that people can develop, which they can on community committees, and sometimes it can be their first opportunity to be involved in a um, in a, a voluntary capacity. And I, I see it as often the training ground for all of the sports clubs and the PNCs and, the, you know, all of those things. People go along and, and have some of that kind of early training. So for me, there's that volunteer type, you know, civic duty stuff that happens within community management. There's a lot of wonderful support. There's a lot of um, providing a different perspective to the person who's actually delegated to run that service on a day-to-day basis. So I've been involved in community management committees that actually spoke on behalf of families because they felt that some of the policies were perhaps not fair to families or were not fair to particular families. Um, And it is also the opportunity for a community to watch out you know, for a group to watch out for its community. I could probably go on for about an hour and a half on this, and I won't, but I do feel really strongly about the role that community management plays within a community. And I, yeah. I think that the gains are worth it. I think it's very hard what is required of them and, and perhaps, you know, might be better to talk about that in the next uh, the next couple of questions that I know we've got there. Um, and I wonder how we we alleviate some of that. Well, I know how we can alleviate that, but I, I, I just really believe that this kind of strategic community management that can happen, the skills that are developed, the goodness that happens out of it, and the role that people can play in their communities is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. And to me, there's there's two things that you haven't... Two things, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that you didn't mention that I'd like to mention, which is the importance of community-based parent committees for women who have left the workforce 
who have become mothers or who have um, reduced their involvement in the workforce, who have become mothers and get somewhat de-skilled and certainly de-confidenced in that period. And then when they I'm join sure a, a, a committee, they, they get that confidence back again because they realise they do have skills that are needed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's really important. But the other thing which we've covered many times before is because they're the better services. You know, I checked that figure at the moment. 40% of not-for-profit services are exceeding compared to 19% of for-profit and 19% of not-for-profit services are working towards compared to 36% of for-profit ones. So if this... You know, if community-based management is to reduce, if not-for-profit management is to reduce, then our service quality goes down. Yes, that's, yes, absolutely. I should have mentioned that one. I was getting all too sort of emotional about <laughs> about community. But, I, but I'm sorry, not to undermine that particular last comment because fundamentally that's the absolute one. But the other part of it is that uh, those those networks and friendships that are made that actually, I, I know I did sort of mention that the, the, they're that kind of beautiful web of the community that's created that supports children in their, you know, from the, some of my besties are the people that I met in my early childhood settings that our children went to and the support that that is for the children as well. So and Liam, I think that we're getting like regardless of whether it's the NQF that's um, done it or not, I think we are getting to the stage where it is becoming a lot harder for a whole range of reasons for community-based committees to continue to exist. Mm, so I was going to set the cat among the pigeons here, particularly after those lovely uh, statements, which I can't disagree with, that you've, you've both just mentioned, but I might... Um, not exactly play devil's advocate, but I might at least start a conversation. So particularly looking at within within the sphere of community-based management, looking at specifically volunteer family committees, um, I think there's there's a couple of there's probably a, a there's probably two things that I'd, I'd bring up quickly. Oh my God, you've caught the disease. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so satisfying to say. So um, I do have. I do have a question in my head about whether, given the requirements of the National Quality Framework, even if we look at legally, so the role and responsibility of an approved provider is quite a serious legal responsibility that's taken on, I I don't know if that can reasonably be expected full stop of a volunteer parent committee who have no knowledge of early childhood education beyond the fact their children are attending and given what we know about the disconnect between the community's understanding and expectation of early childhood education and care and what we know is actually most important, whether there might actually be significant challenges with having families uh, directing and managing people who are actually qualified to be to be doing it. And... Um, and part of me, and, and and you know, Lisa, and Lisa, listening to you say, and Leanne say about those relationships and those social networks form. Part of me goes, well, 
That's great, but I don't know if the management of quite a serious operation of ensuring children's health and safety, ensuring children's positive learning outcomes is the right forum for that to happen. Liam, you know, every time I hear directors say this a lot, right, and I know that you're not a director at the moment, but I do do hear directors in the sector say this a lot, you know, like they complain about, A, having to do too much of the work of the committee, Mm -hmm. And B, of, you know, like, how can the committee be expected to understand all this stuff, especially if they're only here for a year or two on the committee? But it comes down to me to, okay, so what are you suggesting as the alternative? You could have your organisation absorbed by a larger community-based provider, you know, um, CNK, KU, that sort of SDN, that sort of organisation, good start. You could, um, you know, uh, become a for-profit service and be managed by an owner or you could somehow, you know, I think some people would like to suggest that the director just does it all, which obviously doesn't work at all. I do think, you know, that, it's a question of support, etc. We've seen some quite um, important um, cluster management scenarios happening in Victoria and some trials in New South Wales, which can help by taking off some of the components of the responsibility from those committees and different ones have different levels of working or not working. Um, we, you know, they can, we can see some committees where... You know, um, only some of the members of the committee are parents and others are people from within the community. Um, I think there's a whole range of different ways that committees can work. But to me, like how community-based management started was community-based and operated was the initial for, uh, you know, phrase that we had so that rather than having an organisation like um, some of the bigger providers like Good Start, like KU, etc., which are community-managed but not community-based or community-operated, I it's think a that the... advantage in having... Um, management that is responsive and responsible to that community in which the service is is sitting. And also, Lisa, too, just on that point, is that a lot of these services were only established because the the community came together to make submissions or to, to establish a preschool or whatever. So, there's there's been that interest from the community. And I guess this is where Liam will say, well, that doesn't make it very professional. But I don't know. This is that That's kind of the history, I suppose. The other thing, I suppose, is when you say, you know, it's not professional, who has a greater investment in their service running well than a community, than the community of those parents who have children at it at the time? Mm. Yeah, we've seen some brilliant examples in, you know, like in New South Wales, there's a, um, there was a service, Alstonville Preschool, and Alstonville Preschool was run by, you know, it used to be run by the Baptist Church, and the church decided to pull out, 
the rest of the community, you know, banded together and decided that their community really needed a preschool and that they'd run it as a community-based committee and they had to work their asses off to get enough money to um, get it to, you know, new premises and to get um, the licence transferred, you know, without a lot of help from the New South Wales Department of Education. But that that preschool has gone from strength to strength because I, it pulled people from the community together who really believed and wanted that, that mm. community to have a preschool. And I was very privileged to be at the opening of that preschool and I the, the work that the community did, but what that actually did to the community as well is, I guess, fundamentally where it comes back to me for what happens around community management. So it... It just brought the whole community together. It brought all of the the sponsors of the community together, such as you know the clubs, the the um, all of the sort of extensive business networks, who raised that community up and 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 came together. And it wouldn't have happened unless it was community managed. Wonderful. <laughs> So, I don't think we've resol- I don't think we've resolved this. <laughs> well, I think the problem I think is we could, still got a ways we could go to on go. this for a while, and we've got. We, I think we've only got through two questions of our things, so we're going to have to skip through a few. I think. To, yeah, I think the discussions helped yeah, maybe out. Maybe if we just go to the last one, I reckon. Yeah, well, I, and particularly because I think even the conversation we're having, I think, is that New South Wales is quite. It is a bit. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. New South Wales is a bit weird in all of this stuff. Is that the the system and the way things have operated in New South Wales? I think special. has been very special, and that how this stuff has operated um, historically and the the rigor and attention and and focus on early childhood education. I think has probably been it has always been high in New South Wales, whereas. I guess where I'm coming from is not just in the ACT perspective, but but in a couple of other spots as well where. Um, I don't think it's as easy to assume that there will be this rigour and approach to um, just because families have a vested interest. But um, I think what we wanted to talk about, or maybe I think maybe Lisa, you were going to bring us to this one, is talk about talk about New South Wales a bit more and the current situation with the state government and the potential for, I guess, yeah, for... Yeah, and look, yeah. the reason this is important for a national podcast to um, look at is apparently New South Wales might be the forerunner of this, but it may be happening in every other state and territory too. I would hope that it happens better in the other states and territory than what it appears to be happening in New South Wales, but you never know your luck in a big city or in a big country. So essentially, um, New South Wales introduced in 2016 in an attempt to get rid of the, what's our word for the um, for the family daycares that are dodgy? What's our? The rotter alert. Dodgy? Rotter. Oh, the, yeah, rotter. Yeah, we need our rotter alert sign. Um <laughs> In an attempt to get rid of the rotors, they started to have information sessions that approved providers had to attend before they got their approved provider, um, you know, uh, uh, before they got their provider approval. And they had to come to these sessions in um, Sydney and they had to prove that they could actually, they understood the importances of um, being an approved provider and if they didn't, then, you know, um, that was one way for the department to say, well, look, we don't think, um, you know, you've, you've got enough information. We don't think you're the sort of, you know, provider that should be approved because you don't understand the responsibilities. 
Anyway, somewhere along the line in, in the last few months, the department has decided to expand that beyond just new providers and family daycare service providers to all community-based, well, sorry, to all services. And so essentially what they're saying is when anyone puts in uh, a change of person in management and control form in via the secret portal, that will trip them, trip the department to sending them um, a request to attend an information session. Right. So that sounds good. That sounds like good. What's bad about it is that these sessions are only being held in Sydney. These sessions um, are held about once every two months. So that means that... um, There's only uh, one option for them to go to. Yeah. It's also very unclear. They've got to attend an open book exam at the end of the session, but it's not quite clear um, whether that's on the same day at the session as the session or whether it's a, a different day. Um, the uh, the um, persons of management and control may be required to provide evidence of child recent child protection training, but it doesn't exactly say which. Um, child protection training that it's supposed to be um, and it it doesn't change even if you're an existing provider so someone like KU and I'm sorry I keep using KU as an example today but someone like KU that may have say you know hundreds of centres if they add another service to their thing and and that's you know considered a new service approval, then their persons of management and control will now have to go and do this again. And until they've done it once, you know, and prove that they can do it, then um, then they're not allowed to get a new service approval, even though they are currently running hundreds and hundreds of services. And so it, it it's going to create a huge problem. I call it you know, the potential death knell for the community-based education and care sector because it's hard enough to get people to be on management committees in some of our rural areas if they have to come down to Sydney to do a training course and an open book exam, if they have to take off more time off work to do a child protection training um, that's, you know, unclear which child protection training it is, if there's no allowance for this to be done by webinar or, you know, um, uh, off-site training, then it's nuts. If it's got to be, you know, if people have to do it that are already, you know, um, that are all running, running centres, then it's nuts. I can see, you know, like I can see the real advantages in ensuring people understand what the responsibility of an approved provider is, but... This one seems to, will affect the community-based sector a lot harder than the other parts of the sector. But I think we, yes, like like you said, Lisa, I think we agree it's the the more, you know, community-based providers can know about their responsibilities of pre-provider, I think it's just how that's delivered and what are the options for people to actually, yeah, it seems madness that can't be offered online. 
Oh, precisely. And I hope that in other states and territories it will, but it, it's, you know, like it's, like everything in New South Wales, it's been implemented badly, so we're really fighting well, the to idea get the information is, yeah. And, I mean, the and, intention is good there, and the 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 um the and I guess in in many ways, Liam, it speaks to a lot of the things that you've identified tonight that that are problematic in community which management. Which I'm too scared to bring up again now because we'll be here for another forty five minutes. <laughs> no, don't, don't be scared. I think it's kind of come full circle. But the 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 implement it's always the implementation that counts, and that's the that's the challenge here is that it could fall over at the first at the first hurdle because the implementation, the, the strategy hasn't been thought through carefully. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for our main topic for the week. Thanks for sticking with us, as always. We'd, we'd love to hear feedback, but uh, stay with for just a quick break and we'll be back with our recommendations and wrap up for the week. All right, welcome back. So we're going to bring our recommendations for what you should be uh, reading, listening, seeing this week, and we're going to start with Leanne. What are you bringing us? I'm bringing us. I, I had a bit of an OECD theme last week, and I'm bringing another OECD uh, link here. There is no webinar for this one, but this is um, something that's actually up ahead, which is the OECD Starting Strong Teaching and Learning International Survey. So the OECD is extending their work to do some um, research into the people that actually deliver the early childhood education so that they can see where, um, where teachers make the difference. So this is going to measure things like um, beliefs about children's learning, centre climate, job satisfaction and working conditions, um, just a whole range of things, including leadership, which I'm very happy to see. And at the moment, there are going to be, oh, I can't remember how many services, uh, how many countries are going to be in this, but there's 30 services per country. It's not a, it's not a huge number of um, countries, nine, nine countries are going to be involved in this initial work. So obviously, what they're looking for is what impact early childhood educators have on the outcomes for children that they've been measuring for a long time. So this is pretty exciting stuff coming up. Yay. What's data? It's always exciting. It is exciting, but now we're actually going to be able to see the value. I mean, we've seen some small-scale research on this, but I think what we're going to see is much larger-scale research on the value that educators have and the impact that they have. But we're going to be able to look at what it is that's different about the conditions within that which they work, their qualifications, all of those things on um, the, the children's outcomes. Wonderful. All right, check that mm. out, everyone. Lisa, what are you bringing us this week? Um, look, mine's an article that's really more about school education than early education, but it's um, looking at the views of people like Sir Ken Robertson and Sagatra Mitra, who is that um, wonderful guy that decided to uh, put computers into slums in India and see what happened and oh, discovered that right. children um, actually started to use... They taught themselves how to use the computers, then they started to use them to search for information about their own lives and their own 
surroundings and how to solve real problems that they were facing. Um, and one of the things these two people are saying is that, you know, maybe we need to give up on education. Maybe we don't actually need to educate people anymore because people can, children can, um, uh, you know, um, capable, um, so Ken put it this way, Kids, not just kids, but people in general are perfectly capable of organising their own learning, that people are natural learners. Left to their own devices, it's extraordinary what even young kids will figure out. So I thought maybe, yeah, we're looking at a situation where schools could become a bit more like earlier education and care centres, <laughs> yeah, where children are left to learn themselves and, um, you know, with a teacher as guide rather than teacher as... Instructor. Imparter Instructor. of the knowledge. Mm. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, Ken Robinson, mm. he's, uh, he's, he's, he's going to leave behind him a very good legacy, I think, when he retires, and he's done a lot of good work in education. Um, my recommendation is obviously the, uh, the trailer for the Doctor Who Christmas special at the <laughs> end of this year. No, it's not actually. But everyone should check that out. It's pretty amazing. Um, oh, you've, you've just gone to your happy place. I just have. Know? That's right. But um, no, my one is just a really quick article from the New York Times um, that talks about how effective uh, funded home visits have been in, the, in a, a few states, particularly in the U.S., um, about uh, very early on and throughout the sort of first three years in particular, uh, visits by uh, nurses. So it's a little bit sort of separate to early education, but I, I put it there as a recommendation because it's something I, I just knew very little about home visiting and I've heard, I've been sort of doing a little bit of reading about it over the last sort of 12 months or so. It's an interesting thing. It's very uh, popular is not the word, but it's quite, um, it's, it's sort of an accepted thing in a lot of, in particularly in the UK and parts of Europe and in, in specific states in in um, in the US, in Australia, it sort of happens, you know, quite early on. So you get you can have visits from match nurses and things like that. But the idea of even you know early childhood centres going out and doing home visits, which is quite common in the UK in particular, just hasn't really uh, caught on to the extent here. And it's just something that I, I just find fascinating to think about. I don't know how you know it would what what would what would require in Australia for that to change the way we think about early education, incorporating things like home visiting, but. Um, it is one of those things that happened internationally that um, yeah, it's just worth reflecting on. So it's a really it, – it, and it, the, the article particularly tells a pretty powerful story about how that's really helped to address or at least go some way towards addressing inequality uh, for particularly vulnerable children and families. So, yeah, I found it a pretty interesting read. So go yeah. and track that one down. It'd be interesting to know um, if any of the people who listen to us are doing home visits. I'd love, I'd be fascinated to know because it could be one of those things that mm. I'm just completely missing, and it does happen a lot. In and I imagine it'd be one of those things where, in particular areas, I reckon it would happen a lot, and I just haven't heard of it. I'd love to hear Australian examples for where that's where that's I, happening. I know a service where which operates in a largely Aboriginal community where they do it not so much in a traditional home visiting sense, but where they know that there's a child of the age that should be in preschool and isn't ah. they just go and kind of sit on the the front veranda of that <laughs> house and talk to the parents for a while and then you know gradually over time bring up the fact that they've got a bus and that'll be the bus will be there to pick up their child and you know they just make those relationships yeah. through that kind of home visiting that enables the child to attend early education so. wonderful 
yeah, we'll, we'll um, get in touch if you're doing something similar. I'd love, I'd be, we'd, we'd love to hear those sort of stories. But look, that's it for another week. Uh, we Before we sort of go into our regular spiel, though, we do have to do, I think, a, a bit of a shout out to, I guess, hopefully a new early education show listener. Uh, given that um, his mum has appeared twice on the early education show, which we're still a bit chuffed about. So I don't know if, it, if people have sort of seen on social media or in a few news articles that uh, Shadow Minister for Early Childhood Education, Kate Ellis, had her second child, uh, Charlie, and there's some pretty uh, pretty gorgeous photos of, uh, or a, I think a photo of him on that Kate posted on Twitter and Facebook. So big congratulations to uh, the expanding yeah. Ellis family. Was um, it's always congratulations? It's always How long. exciting! <laughs> so I know. So, so that, maybe, maybe Liam, we can also do a little tiny shout out to someone that some people in the early education care sector would know because of her prolific um, uh, Twitter following, which is. M- Marion Rakosi, whose partner also had a baby today. This is breaking news as we record this on it Wednesday night. It is breaking news. Oh, well, only if you're not on Twitter. That's right. <laughs> hey, came out hours ago, Luke. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, yes, congratulations to Marion and Rhea for Dylan. Dylan will be two days old as this comes out. Um, and we'll be expecting Marion, obviously, to play this to him. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quick smart. <laughs> If he has a sleep problem. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, that's it for another week. Thanks for sticking with us. If you want to find out more about the show, head to our website, earlyeducationshow.com. While you're there, you can contact us pretty easily by, by just clicking contact us or emailing us directly at earlyedushow at gmail.com. Uh, if you're at the website, we'd be very, very grateful if you hit the support the show tab as well. That's going to take you to a page where you can uh, chuck us a bob or two each month to, to keep this show on the road. Um, a review and a rating on the Apple Podcast Store also helps other listeners find the show and um, through some bizarre combination of algorithms and data improves our ranking. So we're also very, very grateful for that. You can find the show also on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Early Edgy Show on both of those platforms. And you can find the three of us individually, mostly on Twitter. We, we hang out and, and, and fling around the hashtags. You can find me at Liam McNicholas. And me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne M. Gibbs 3. Good job. You're rapidly encroaching on my Twitter follower account as well, Leanne. I'm going to have to start, I don't know, posting more colourful GIFs or baby photos or something. It's not going Baby well. photos. Baby no, photos. Diversify, <laughs> diversify your, your Twitter and, you know, keep it the Doctor Who. You'll pick up a bunch of Doctor Who fans. That's true, yeah. I could just start, well, the trouble is I didn't even live tweet the most recent season because I could just picture Lisa getting more and more furious. But anyway. I might do that starting for the Christmas special. Yeah, I noticed that quite a few of Oz Early Ed people are are tweeting about a show called Bachelor or something tonight. Oh Oh, no! Okay, are we stopping you from watching that? I'm not going there. I'm not going there. (laughs) But until until next week, uh, we we hope you have a fantastic week. Whether you're watching Doctor Who or or the bachelor, bachelor, bachelorette. I don't know. I'm not sure which one it is. Clever man. That's what people should be watching. Clever man. Yes, I agree. Oh God, we need to turn this into the pop culture review podcast at some point. But until that happens, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. <laughs> <laughs>